Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another of our Agenda 2021 series of discussions in which we look at the potential policies of an incoming Biden administration. Uh, I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York City. We're very lucky to be joined today for this discussion by Carol Browner, who's the former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, was an advisor uh, to President uh, Obama. Uh, on energy and climate change policy. Hi, Carol. Hello. And we are joined also by David Sandalow, who is the inaugural fellow at the Columbia University Center for Global Energy Policy, who has served in senior positions at the White House, at the State Department, and in the Department of Energy. Hi, David. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. No, thanks. Uh, it's good to see you. It's been a while. Um, uh, let me begin with uh, just a perception of mine, and that is that as we have gone through the past three and a half years, we have looked at attacks um, by the Trump administration on the rule of law. We've looked at attacks on America's standing internationally on a variety of different fronts. Uh, we've looked at um, recently uh, kind of shocking uh, deployment of U.S. forces against Americans uh, in the cities. We could go on, children in cages. There's a long list uh, of Trump outrages. But to me, quietly, in many respects, throughout the course of this administration, some of the greatest damage that has been done has been done by removing uh, environmental regulations, uh, stepping away from the Paris Accords, doing things to allow companies um, uh, to exploit the planet in precisely the ways you don't want them to do in the midst of a deepening climate crisis. Um, and I think in many respects, this may be some of the damage that is hardest to reverse. Let me start with you, Carol. Do you agree with what I'm saying? And if so, where do you think the problems um, have been most uh, severe? I, I totally agree. And in fact, I would say, uh, going even a step further, it's not just the rollbacks. And some of them we get to read about. Many of them are buried and they're hard to find. But for example, the work, and David and I worked together on this, on setting fuel efficiency standards for cars, uh, the rollback of, of that requirement, which simply means that we will not have you know, the cleaner air that cleaner cars can bring us, the more efficient a tank of gas won't go further, et cetera. 
Uh, so, you know, you know, real impacts on American uh, families across the country. Um, but there's a whole second set of things they've done in addition to sort of these rollbacks. And that, it, it, in some ways, it's much more insidious. They're actually changing the sort of fundamental structure that we use to set environmental standards. So how do we set an environmental standard? We look at the law. We look at the science. In this case, they've said, you can't use all of the science that's available. If the science relied on a database uh, that had people's personal health information, if that information isn't publicly available, in other words, your personal health information is not publicly available, EPA can no longer use that science. These kind of longitudinal personal studies are hugely important in the environmental space. So they've changed what science can be used. They've changed the enforcement mechanisms. Um, it used to be that there would be a penalty, but you'd also have to do something to you know, make the environment better. It's called a supplemental environmental project. Uh, for example, Volkswagen got caught for a pretty major cheat. They paid a huge penalty, but that's kind of the cost of doing business for some companies. They also had to build a huge electrification system across the country. Those are no longer allowed. And in fact, they're going back now to see if they can undo ones that are already on the book. So it's not just going forward, it's going backwards. And then I think the final uh, sort of insidious act is to change how the agency looks at the benefits associated with uh, you know, air pollution, water pollution standards. Uh, you normally look at all of the benefits. Some are you know, the pollutant you're regulating. Uh, there are benefits from having less of that pollution in the air. But some are what we call co-benefits. Because you put on a scrubber, you'll pick up some other pollutants. They will no longer count the co-benefits associated with the new uh, pollution requirements. So what we really see are these fundamental changes in how the agency can do its business. And we're really going to lose some of the, the most important environmental gains uh, we get when we look at the best science, when we enforce the standards, uh, and we enforce them to achieve environmental outcomes, not just monetary. And we make sure that we are accounting for all of the benefits when we look at what it will be, both in terms of the cost and then the benefits to society. David, what do you think? I 100% agree with everything Carol just said, and I would focus in particular on what the administration has done on climate change, a, a systematic dismantling of the U.S. government's response to climate change, which is the most urgent issue we face in this area. And it, it's, of course, withdrawing from the Paris Accord, which, which gets headlines, but it goes well beyond that. It's, it's refusing to consider climate change uh, in agency considerations. Um, it's uh, it, it's de de denying even that climate science uh, is a reality. Um, it's withdrawing from a range of international processes where um, uh, now the United States is, is disrespected internationally as a result of this. Um, and, and look where we are as a result of this. Um, you know, it, it, I think it's worth level setting on the climate change issue right now. Last month, north of the Arctic Circle in a town in Siberia, temperature reached over 100 degrees, highest temperature ever recorded. M May of 2020 was the warmest May, May ever recorded. July of 2019 was the warmest month ever recorded and the warmest year, the warmest five years ever recorded over the past five years. So we're facing a crisis and this administration has taken us exactly in the wrong direction in addressing it. So what are the cumulative consequences of this, Carol? I'm, I mean, you know, damage is being done. What does the damage look like beyond, of course, what David just said in terms of the climate crisis itself? Well, any environmental problem, whether it's conventional air pollution, soot, smog, or climate, requires steady progress. It's, it's a building block. You take a step, you analyze, you take another step, you take another step. 
we have lost now more than four years in our fight against climate change uh, because one, they have done absolutely nothing. They're trying to dismantle the system and they've rolled things back. So in some ways it's even more than four years. It's, it's more like six or eight years. And what the scientists tell us is we have 10 years. We have 10 years before we have catastrophic results. In some ways we're already experiencing catastrophic results. And so the idea that now we have to go even faster than we might otherwise have had to go because of this complete lack of attention uh, to what I think is the most pressing problem facing the world today, climate change. David, there's a a small saving grace here, which is the administration's incompetence in a number of ways. (laughs) I mean, they have been remarkably inept at trying to dismantle some environmental regulations and have been called by the courts on this. Unfortunately, in some instances, they have succeeded. But their, their incompetence has helped in a number of regards. Well, if you, if you want to talk about their incompetence, their incompetence in dealing with COVID is having an interesting effect in that we are actually seeing a decrease in some of the conventional uh, pollutants. We, you know, we're hearing uh, people in New York talk about they can hear birds again. They can actually see the sky again. And so people are starting to experience what cleaner air uh, would actually look like. And you do have some cities, both in the United States and around the world, uh, that are trying to see if they can preserve some of this. And while those may not all be climate um, uh, pollutants, uh, there's still important pollutants to address in terms of the health effects they have on, on individuals. So uh, perhaps in, in COVID, we see uh, while cases are made worse in more polluted cities, uh, perhaps we see a little bit of what clean air could look like. Well, gee, you guys are providing a very balanced view here. There's all the bad stuff that Trump's trying to do, and then there's the bad stuff he hasn't successfully executed. They're Uh, getting smarter by the day, let's just be clear. They have gotten significantly smarter in their four years. Uh, Yeah, well, no no question about that. But David, just to to, to carry this forward, what has the, the, the stance of this administration done for America's ability to lead or influence outcomes internationally? It's been a disaster, David. And, and you know, I see this most dramatically in, in COVID, and we'll, we'll get to, let's get to environmental issues. But, you know, I, I've represented the United States abroad for, for many years in, in different ways. And I've seen a range of reactions to the United States from other countries. There's, there's respect. There's, there's sometimes anger. Um, uh, a complicated mix of emotions. One thing I've never seen before the past year is pity. And for me, one comment that encapsulated for me was a Canadian who he responded to President Trump's tweet saying that he was going to limit immigration to the United States by saying, oh, darn, you mean we can't come to your plague-infected country with no health care? And around the world, people are just looking at us and, you know, they're, they're obviously not letting us into their countries because of the way COVID's being handled, and they just feel bad for us living in this place. And unfortunately... Similar dynamics are at play in the environmental region area and, and climate change in, in particular. I think you know the, the United States is now seen as a deeply irresponsible player on this issue. Um, you know, as a result of um, what President Trump did, President Xi Jinping was able to uh, travel around the world and proclaim himself a responsible stakeholder in the global community. A, a rich irony, um, given that that was the tagline that we, the United States government, had used, you know, a little bit more than a decade ago. So, Carol, you worked extremely closely with uh, President Obama, and President Obama was a man who um, had a lot of intellectual curiosity, had a, a great brain himself, was, and, and, but also gave a lot of credence to scientists and experts. 
And I'm just wondering how you, having done that, would contrast the way the Obama White House dealt with these issues with the way the Trump White House seems to be dealing with those issues. Oh my gosh, I don't know that you can even make a contrast. It's so stark. I mean, there, 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 there's, uh, you know, Obama was very much driven by the facts, very much driven by, by the science and driven by the law. I mean, you, you are confined in what you can do as president, the head of the EPA, whatever, sort of by what uh, the law uh, tells you uh, to do. And he was respectful of all of that law and science and, and, and facts. Um, I don't think the current administration is respectful of any of those things, to, to be honest with you. And uh, I think that is you know, deeply troubling, not just in the environmental arena and the climate arena, you know, much, but much more broadly. You know, you, you mentioned sort of Obama's intellect. And um, like David, I've been to many of the international meetings on climate change. Um, I joined President Obama as part of his team when we went to Copenhagen, which was the beginning of the administration and his first climate uh, meeting, international meeting. And what I was so struck by, and David, I'm sure you were there, is that we were suddenly, as Americans, we were taken seriously because we had started to take domestic actions. You know, prior to that, we, 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 we had talked a lot about what the world should do, but we, always, we hadn't necessarily taken all the domestic actions. And so we went to Copenhagen with a credibility that allowed Obama to sort of drive a change in, the, in, in how the world would think about climate change and manage climate change, which is then really realized in the Paris Agreement, which is so important. And you know, what I think about when we have the next round of, of they've now been delayed, they'll be around in, in, I guess, in a year of the next climate meetings, will the United States go to those meetings with that kind of credibility? Will we be able to help shape what the world needs to do? Because we're taking our own domestic steps to account for our part of the problem. And I, I you know, if it's Mr. Trump, first of all, they probably won't even go, uh, but we certainly, uh, uh, won't have any credibility. And that will be a very sad state of affairs, not just for the United States, but for the world. David, same question to you. I've heard you describe settings where you were overseas, for example, with President Obama, and he would come into a room and it would change the course of the conversation in fairly dramatic ways. So I, I, I suspect you have a similar perspective. I know, I, I do. I mean, P President Obama... Um, was deeply immersed in this issue. Uh, he he understood it substantively, and he worked the diplomacy of it. You know, he, heading into heading into the Paris Agreement before, before the Paris Conference, President Obama was personally working the phones, um, trying to bring leaders on board with with an agreement and also with ambitious plans. Um, and of course, the agreement that President Obama um, struck with with the Chinese leadership was a was foundational for the Paris Agreement. So he was he was deeply uh, engaged in this issue and. Presidential leadership is extremely important in, in this. You know, um, in, years ago when I was a uh, White House staffer working on these issues, um, it's interesting. When call a meeting on some topics, you'd get a few agencies that would come. Call a meeting on climate change, everybody comes because everybody has equities. <laughs> Cheryl remembers this, yeah. And uh, it's such a cross-cutting issue uh, that, uh, that, that you, need, um, you need leadership at the top. To pull it all together, and, and President Obama did that, um, you know, in a, in, in a very impressive way. And by the way, as did um, President Clinton and Vice President Gore um, before before President Obama. Um, uh, so, I, and, I, and I, you know, we're, we're going to get to to Vice President Biden, but it's pretty clear to me that that he will bring the same if elected. Well, let me let me begin us in that direction. Um, 
You know, Carol, it strikes me. I mean, I was in the Clinton administration and I remember these issues and I remember particularly Vice President uh, Gore's leadership on on these things. Um, And I kind of have a sense of where climate and energy policy fit in the general spectrum of things. Not at the center, but it was important. Um, I, I feel over the 20 years of this century, and particularly over the last four years, that there has been a kind of a sea change. Part of it is a reaction to the policies of the Trump administration. Part of it is the deepening of the climate crisis um, so that we, do, we don't even refer to climate change anymore. We refer to the climate crisis. Um, and within the Democratic Party, as we look at younger voices, not just progressive voices, but younger voices, green issues have emerged as central issues. Um, and whether we're talking about AOC or whether we're talking about Elizabeth Warren and, 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 and Bernie Sanders, the policies that have been promoted seem to have pulled the center over and have become more central. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Oh yes, I I, I agree. Um, one of the one of the things I do today is I chair the board of directors of the League of Conservation Voters, the LCV, and we are very active in in the presidential and other elections, um, working to elect people who believe climate change is real and will take action. And what our polling is showing us is exactly what you're saying, which is for younger people particularly, this is a key key issue. It's also a key issue for some swing voters, we've discovered. Uh, women, uh, some of them who voted for Trump, they've gone back and forth. Uh, they don't know how bad he is on this issue, but when they are told, they find it quite uh, compelling. And so, while I don't know that climate change and, and the climate crisis will be a topic in the sort of the, 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 the you know, the, the, the debates or whatever takes place uh, between the two candidates, I think in terms of moving voters on a community by community basis, on a grassroots basis, and the kind of stuff that you mentioned about AOC and Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie, I think all of that could be hugely important uh, in, in this um, election. Um, I, I, if I might just tell a very quick story about the Clinton sure. era. Um, I was uh, head of EPA and I was testifying on our appropriations budget and I got into a fight with then a Tom DeLay, which some of you may remember was the uh, whip under Mr. Gingrich. And the fight in this hearing was over whether or not EPA was regulating greenhouse gas emissions. And finally, I said, you know, we're studying it. This is the early 90s. We're understanding the science but I don't even know if we can regulate it because the law we operate under the Clean Air Act is silent. It doesn't mention the word climate change. It doesn't mention the words greenhouse gases. And so he said, well, ask your lawyers what they think. So I went back and I asked the lawyers and, you know, as lawyers can do, they took a very long time, but they wrote a memo um, saying, yes, in fact, if EPA determines that greenhouse gases endanger public health and welfare, they must, not they can, they must regulate. We left office. The state of Massachusetts took that memo and went all the way to the Supreme Court where they won um, a 5-4 decision which says EPA shall regulate if greenhouse gases endanger public health and welfare. And the first thing Lisa Jackson did under President Obama was make that determination. So when we get the next president, when Mr. Biden finally takes office, he will have the ability on day one, he does not need to go to Congress to start again, regulating greenhouse gases to sort of pick up, we'll have to do it on steroids, you know, where Obama left off. That's what Obama had been doing. But 
I sometimes uh, kind of chuckle. Do you think Tom DeLay knows that he is the proximate <laughs> cause of a Supreme Court decision recognizing this authority? I, I suspect uh, probably not. No, but we, but we are building a strong case here for the incompetence or unintentional progress that Republicans have achieved for us in this regard. <laughs> um, uh, D- David, uh, you know, uh, again, sort of going back to this era, the three of us are all sort of roughly exactly the same age. You know, I remember going into meetings and I was dealing with a bunch of stuff, both on the economic side but and subsequently on the national security side. And I would go into meetings and say that, you know, this was an important issue for foreign policy or or go to the Pentagon and say, this is an important issue for security policy. And, and now, and, and, and they're, they're, particularly in the Pentagon, there were kind of eye rolls, like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. That's not what we're here to do. But now you listen to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you listen to the senior military officers out there, and there's almost universal acceptance among them that climate crisis is a national security priority, must be a priority because of the dislocations it'll produce, um, the conflicts it'll produce, whether they're energy conflicts or they're water conflicts or they're conflicts related to the, the absence uh, of, of, of other such resources. That's a, that's a big change too, right? Within the heart of these institutions, there's a change. It, it, that's exactly right, David. It's, it's, it's a huge change. And look, no, nobody knows more about the national security you know, process than you do. But it's, it's been amazing, I think, to see the contrast between the way that the defense establishment addresses this issue and the way the Trump administration has addressed this issue. The, the defense um, uh, establishment is, is in, you know, fact-based. Um, if, if, you're, if you're planning for a, a multi-billion dollar um, naval base over the course of several decades, you, you can't ignore sea level rise. It, it, it doesn't work, doesn't make sense. Um, and if you're looking at instability and hotspots around the world, uh, climate change is central. I mean, we've already seen you know, climate change played a significant role in um, droughts in the Middle East, in particular in Syria, over the course of the past 10 years. Um, and it was a major contributing factor to the terrible destabilization there and then refugee crisis and, and much more. So um, uh, it, it's hugely important. And, and climate change is a national security issue. Uh, I think that's widely recognized now uh, among leading thinkers and hugely important to the future of managing this issue. Uh, yeah, and we could list all the India-Pakistan water conflict and the potential yeah. to lead to nuclear conflict, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of other places. All right, well, let's let's sort of shift our, our, our focus a little bit towards the, the, the future. Uh, as we were saying a moment ago, Carol, there's been a, a movement, particularly in the progressive part of the Democratic Party, to emphasize these issues. One of the things that's been interesting about this kind of low-key Biden campaign that w- hasn't really gotten a lot of attention because it doesn't do the kind of wild shenanigans that the president does is um, that Biden said, okay, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to listen to the to the to the uh, to the progressive wing, I'm going to meet with the the folks who supported Bernie or the AOCs or the Elizabeth Warrens, and we've actually seen a manifestation of that. So just a week ago, Vice President Biden came out and said, "Here is an economic plan," and at the center of that plan, there were several green initiatives. And so, uh, you know, I'm a first comment on that. But then, what do you expect? from a Biden administration that will not only be different from a Trump administration, but from an Obama 
administration? Um, well, first of all, I think that the vice president's announcement last week on climate change building into his economic policy uh, was very, very significant. And, uh, you know, it's, I think, been a journey. I think he, as you noted, has spent a lot of time listening to people. Uh, when we uh, met with him at the LCV, we encouraged him to do outreach. We encouraged him to engage the environmental justice community. He's done all of that work, and that is reflected in the plan. And the fact that his plan announced last week is really embedded in the economy, is embedded in infrastructure. It takes into account the realities of environmental justice that certain communities suffer disproportionately, I think is, is, is remarkable in terms of a climate plan. It makes all the right investments. You know, there's still lots to do of the more traditional sort, but the fact that he's framed it in this way, I think is is hugely um, important. Um, how will it be different from President Obama? Uh, the crisis is just that much worse. We now know that we have a very, very short time. And so he will have to use every single tool available to an administration. Um, you know, one of the things that administrations can frequently do is say, well, we'll go to Congress and we'll talk to them for a while and hopefully we'll get legislation. And if we don't, then we'll look at what tools we have in our toolbox, what regulations can we. Day one, he's going to have to be using both of those. He's going to be have to Use, he's going to have to use the budget, literally the government procurement process, every single tool available uh, to him uh, from day one. Obviously, rejoining Paris will be a first step, uh, but then all of the work across um, the government, I think, will be uh, hugely important. And it's not going to be enough, given the magnitude of the problem, to simply like reinstate the Obama regulations that um, Trump has rolled back. Those regulations are now four, six, seven years old, right? They were very good at the time, but we know a lot more today. And so we're going to have to sort of leapfrog uh, forward as we work to address um, the problem. You know, one of the things that Obama did is create an office, which I was um, very honored to chair, uh, that put climate change on equal footing with domestic policy, national security, national economics, right? So I was at the table helping develop the Recovery Act, which is the largest investment in, in, in green technology. You know, my hope is that uh, President, uh, Pres we'll call him President Biden, because that's what will have to be by then, will do the same, that really put this right there you know, not bury it underneath something so that there's an equal voice. Because as David said earlier, this issue cuts across the entire government at the end of the day. You know, David made mention earlier to the stuff that I've written about the NSC and a couple of books, and I'm written it, writing another one now. But um, I just have to say as a footnote <laughs> how important that is. If it doesn't have its own place of honor among the priority um, uh, uh, po policy mechanisms within the White House, it will get kicked down the list. It yeah. will not, and, and you, you won't be able to say, we're dealing with the climate crisis if it's item number six right. on an NSC agenda. Right. Um, so it's a it's a really important point. You know, and it, it, we um, there's a, a gentleman who worked with all of us in the White House. Joe Alde is now at, at at Harvard, and he was sitting in the NSC, the NEC, in my office. So like we were just constantly working across, you know, all all lines. But you know, it was um, 
it was really important that someone like Larry Summers, who was chairing the NEC or Tom Donnellan chairing the NSC, that I was their equal. That meant I got invited to the same meetings. And, you know, you can say, oh, what difference does it make, Carol? You got invited to a meeting. Well, in a White House structure, who's in the room when major decisions go down is hugely um, important. We had a decision during the BP oil spill where I made an argument to the president uh, that we should shut down all of the rigs in the Gulf of Mexico because we didn't know how we would respond to another uh, rig collapse. And we simply didn't know. The odds were low, but we didn't have the manpower or the people power. And the economist argued, oh, no, 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 they'll never come back. You'll have all these job losses. And, you know, the president made the decision to shut it down. Now, the economist turned out to be not right. Everything came back and there's a lot more drilling going on today. And that's another conversation. But the idea that that environmental voice was in the room when the president uh, took in the facts and then, you know, made a decision was hugely important. What else do you expect, David, to be, to be different? Well, let me just, I just want to start by saying that Carol is being unduly modest here. It's, it's not just the structure, but it's also the people who are pushing it. And, you know, Carol, both at the EPA and, and in her role at the White House, is real ma- a major driver of change in all these areas. So thank you, Carol, for, for everything you yeah. did there. Um, uh, uh, um, I think that uh, this, that the Biden administration has the potential, um, and I think if elected, it, it will be um, the, the greatest administration ever on climate change issues. The, the moment the moment is right. Sometimes the stars you know, need, to, need to align to affect change. And, and as we started to talk about earlier, we, we have seen a dramatic change in the public attention to climate change issues. Um, uh, you know, famously, for those of us who pay attention to these issues, in 2016, there was not a single question in the presidential debates about climate change, uh, amazingly. Um, this year, we've had whole debates you know, uh, on that very topic. Um, and it's just central to, it was central to every candidate's uh, um, policies during the Democratic pro- primary process. It's central to what Vice President Biden is doing as the presumptive nominee. Um, we, we've seen a dramatic change in youth attention to this issue. Um, you know, um, kind of uh, the poster child is Greta, but, but, the, but it's, it goes so far beyond that. And the mobilization on this issue is uh, extraordinary in comparison to what, to what it has been. And, and I think one of the most promising developments is what's happening in pulling the union movement and the, the environmental community together. And you really see that in the Biden plan in important ways. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I, I love the vice president had a line in his speech that it was roughly, he said something like, Trump has one word on climate change, hoax. I have one word on climate change, jobs. And I think he, he got the messaging right there. And um, he endorses a bill by Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon on these issues. He's been a real leader on this issue to, to make sure that, that the jobs in the clean energy economy are good paying union jobs. I, I think it's going to make a big difference. I, I, if I can just say, I agree with David Sandelo that bringing the unions and the environmental community together is hugely, hugely important. We had some success early on in Obama, but it's been a complicated relationship over the, the years. And I think Biden is the person uh, to do that. I also think we would be remiss if we didn't uh, spend one second talking about what's going on in the House with Kathy Castor under Pelosi's instructions, uh, chairing the Select Committee on Climate Change, releasing a 500-page sort of to-do list. I mean, you can see, as David says, the stars are aligning. We've got the House with their um, plan. We've got, you know, a vice president candidate for president who's now released his plan. We just need the United States Senate. <laughs> 
Just, just that. Yes. Um, but That's you know, important. I, it, it, it is an important point because I think that um, certainly all presidents have a lot to do. I think in President Biden's case, one of the things that he said he wants to do is to cultivate next generation leaders. And I, I think he's going to be led by the leaders. You know, there's going to be force within different parts of the House and the Senate and the administration who are going to move him in, in, in some direction. David, one of the more sensitive parts of this, and if, 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 I, if I may sort of approach it that way, um, again, going back to the experience of being in the Clinton administration, I was you know, an economic official in the Clinton administration, we prided ourselves on being centrist. And this meant that we were regularly at odds, particularly, you know, things like international trade deals with the labor people and the environmental people. And every time you wanted to get a deal done, there was somebody saying, no, we need this labor element or we need this environmental element. And I, you know, again, I think a lot has changed in the 20 years that have transpired since then. And I think there's a, 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 gr- a growing awareness that you can't prioritize the needs of corporate America over the needs of every citizen, either of the country or of the world. Uh, I, I think that's changing in the, I mean, it was interesting, even in the context of the, of the, uh, Trump administration, when they redid NAFTA, they they put in labor provisions because they wanted to push up the price of of labor in in, in Mexico. But but I, I think there's a change in the character, the constellation of the Democratic Party here. Do you think I'm right? I I think Joe Biden has pulled together a remarkable coalition. Actually, uh, it's really impressive what's happened in, in the past month and pa- past couple of months on this. I mean, there, you know, any coalition has some different viewpoints. Um, uh, but what you see is under the umbrella of, of his leadership right now, um, people are rowing in the same direction and they're doing it with a lot of enthusiasm and, and with a lot of gusto. And, and, and the climate plan that, that he released last, you know, recently uh, is, is a great example of that. Um, and, and, and can I make a related point, David? Because I think it's this is so important. I want to, you know, one of the big issues that I think Vice President Biden will need to and want to take up if he's elected is democracy in this country, and that's a whole other conversation. In some ways, we have incredible challenges related to minority rule and voting rights issues, but there's an important tie to this issue because the democracy agenda is central to the climate agenda. We can't have sustained climate change action with minority rule in this country, um, and. You know, we, just if you, if you look back in, in 2010, um, the Waxman-Markey bill, which was a bill to regulate green, limit greenhouse gases in this country, it, had, it passed the House. It had more than 50 senators supporting it. It had the president of the United States supporting it. And it had a majority of the U.S. public supporting it. But it didn't become law. And we just can't sustain public we can't sustain action on climate change over the long term unless we fix some of these core issues related to, to, to democracy. So I, for anybody who's listening who is a climate activist, I would just say, uh, or please channel your energy also towards democracy reforms because they're really going to matter to our ability to take, take on these issues in the long term. I, I want to just totally agree with David. Um, H.R. 1, which is the bill that uh, the Democrats have introduced in the House, is essential. I would go even a step Further, um, remembering the Waxman market fact, we didn't even get this bill up on the Senate floor. We could never get that far. Right. Um, and despite a lot of efforts, um, the filibuster in the Senate 
is a real problem um, on a number of levels, but particularly on climate change. Um, we can probably get in a slightly new Senate, get very close to 50, maybe get more. But with the filibuster, we will be totally, totally uh, hamstrung. The other thing I think we should note in this sort of broader conversation. Yeah, so about just to put a change, point on it is filibuster's got to go. Yeah. It's got to it's go. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, I should have been clearer. Yes, I mean, it's taken me a long time to get there because I think about other things, but we've done it for judges. I mean, and we won't do it right. for climate change. I mean, um, but the other thing I, I do think, um, David, to you, that's really important to note is the private sector is playing a bigger role. I don't want to be Pollyannish about what they can do, but you have last week BlackRock putting out sort of their sustainability report and calling out 50 plus companies that they say are just not good enough on evaluating their climate risk. And you know, we're seeing more and more pension funds stepping in, filing shareholder petitions. So I, I think that all of this is sort of, you know, the pressure is just growing and growing. And, you know, from being eight years as a regulator, one of the things I am keenly aware of is I can have the science on my side, I can have the law on my side, I can have the activists on my side, but ultimately the businesses have to deliver. They have to step up and I have to enforce the law against them. And so, you know, anytime I could get a company to say, yep, you know what, Browner's right, we're going to go ahead and do that. It just changed the whole dynamic. And so when we move into a climate debate and a new administration, those business leaders, those voices of, of saying this is doable, we must do it, are going to be a hugely important part of the conversation. Okay, so we've got um, just five minutes left. Um, take six or seven if you want. But let me go to David and then I'll go to Carol for the last word on this. First hundred days, top three, four, five priorities. What are the things that Joe Biden's got to do, come in and deliver at the outset because we need it done given the global situation and because uh, we, we, we have to prioritize these things if we're going to end up at the right place in, in 10 years um, to pick up on the deadline that Carol mentioned. I think on day one, um, rejoin the Paris process, the Paris Agreement, um, uh, immediately set in place um, measures to, to restore the regulatory framework that was in place under the Obama administration. Uh, um, if you've got to do it in the right way, but immediately you know, uh, get, get to work on that. Um, make clear that climate change is going to be a priority of, of the U.S. government. And then, you know, in, in the diplomatic arena, start to uh, do something that, that he has pledged to do, which is convene a, a summit of world leaders um, on this issue. Um, and uh, something that's been part of the Biden climate plan for a while, it's going to be, um, you know, a heavy lift on a new administration. Um, but, but, uh, but convening world leaders to, to, to say that, you know, the U.S. is back um, and, and we're, going to lead on this issue is going to be hugely important. And then, and then just, uh, you know, double down on the, the point we we're just discussing, focus on the democracy agenda too, and, and make clear from day one that, that this is going to be a priority because that's central to the climate change agenda as well. Right. Um, but, but just before we go to you, Carol, one of the things that strikes me, and it's related to the HR1 point is, you know, Citizens United, how we fund campaigns, if we give disproportionate influence to corporate donors, we will end up with outcomes that are most satisfactory to them. And so that's another place. If you don't have campaign finance reform, you will not have a healthy climate. Absolutely. Yeah. As it goes. Yeah. Carol. So democracy first, Paris first, 
democracy, campaign finance. I've been a part of two transitions. I was in the first uh, Clinton-Gore transition and the first Obama administration. I am a huge believer in the die is cast sort of in the late November to early January in terms of not just the first 100 days, but in some ways, the first four years of any presidency. Uh, We knew, for example, that if we didn't get cars done by May, we'd miss a model year. That means we'd miss all those pollution reductions and it would delay power plants because all the way the regulatory scheme was set up, we understood that before Obama reached office. So understanding your four-year plan will be hugely important. So you hit all of those deadlines in the statutes. The one piece I would add to what David said is picking the right people. This is going to be hugely, hugely important. So for example, at EPA, you've got to go in. There are great people there. You've got to rebuild the place. You've got to reestablish the framework it uses. Uh, You need a climate leader uh, there. Uh, Department of Energy, huge number of opportunities. But as you come across the government, it's not just the cabinet positions, and there are several of those that will be key. There's about probably 20 or 30 sub-cabinet. In having knowledgeable people who can hit the ground running will be hugely important. The final thing I will say is as Democrats, and, and we've spent a lot of time we you know, hand-wringing, oh, can we do this? Can we not do this? Because of what the law says. You know what? These people in office, they have tested every single boundary to get done what they want it to get done. And we should not be afraid going forward in testing boundaries. Yes, we need to win in courts and courts are complicated, but you know what? We shouldn't be hand-wringing endlessly. We should hit the ground running. We should have our agenda. We should know what our four-year plan is and we should be executing. Here, here. Um, I have been calling this for the past couple of months scorched earth Democrats. In other words, if you are going to be up against Mitch McConnell, who would try to put in a Supreme Court justice if there was one second left on the clock, um, then you've got to go and you got to do the same thing. And instead, we tend to go take to our fainting couches and say, this is terribly unfair. And and they walk all over us. And I, I just think that's really important. And I also think, you know, apropos of your point, um, uh, you know, having studied how NSCs have worked for the past um, 70, 70 years, that transition period is where the bureaucratic battles are won or lost. And, you know, Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski came in and they went to the president and they said, here's the memo of how the committees are going to work. Here's who's going to be in charge. Here, and, and Nixon and Carter, they would sign off on the memo and then you know, Rogers or Vance in those cases were like, oh my God, you know, they've stolen the beat, the jump on us. It, but that's how it works. And somebody's got to get in there. And unless in that period you say, this is a priority in the way the process is going to work, you're not going to end up with the outcomes. So you totally agree. Well uh, said. So super important. One of the reasons I'm optimistic, uh, besides the fact that this administration may end um, and and a new one may begin, uh, that the Democratic Party is going to get it right, is that you guys are both leaders in this area. And I'm I'm really, really glad that you could take the time, Carol Browner, David Sandalow, to join us on this Agenda 2021 conversation. And I hope as we get closer to the election, or perhaps after the election, you can come back and we can talk a little bit more about things that are actually getting done. But for now, thank you. Stay healthy. Everybody out there listening, thank you for listening. Stay healthy. And if you want to know more about what we're doing in the Agenda 2021 series or with Deep State Radio or any of the other things we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And while you're at it, 
become a member. Thank you very much.